these instruments. These are for controlling our flight. Flight? Well, yes. You see, we travel around in here through time and space. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Don't laugh. It's true. Come inside. Ignore the strange stickiness of the carpet beneath your feet. Find the right seat, the one without the missing arm and the exposed springs. Pull the candy bar out of your inside coat pocket. Look at the color swirls the canned music plays. Wait for the lights to go down. Listen for the telltale clacking of film being pulled through the gate. Relax. Watch. Because we all feel better, better in the dark. It's time to reverse the polarity of the neutron flow, ladies and gentlemen. This is something that we promised for Christmas. This is going to be what our big Christmas present to you guys. But life had other plans for us at the end of the year, and we're going to do it now. Well, actually, what happens is that a lot of times we do episodes, as you well know, if you've been listening to us for a while, and I hope you have been, that we do episodes that are time-sensitive. This actually has been pushed back because ever since September, you ever know that old joke about the kids that are in the back seat and they talk are about... Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, Tom has been like that every week. He said, are we going to do the Doctor Who episode yet? Uh, yeah, we're going to do that. So, I don't think I've been that bad. Oh, you haven't been bad at all okay. because I want to do it as much yes. as you do because I love Doctor Who. And we want to also and give people who are new acolytes, so to speak, of the Doctor who discovered the newer show... A little bit more of a background in the older show. Yeah, because a lot of people only know from the remarkable revival of the series with Christopher oh, I Eccleston. I don't know if I'd call it remarkable. Well, I would with Christopher Eccleston and oh. David Tennant, two the, great actors, two very ab- good men. Absolutely, the series has gotten a new life, mm-hmm. but a lot of people might not want to go back and look at the older series. Which is a shame, because there's a lot of gold in the Nar Hills. Shoot, tell me about it. And I mean, it's, it's amazing that this show, which is now an international phenomenon that is seen around the world, where the hunger here in America is so great for it that the Sci-Fi Channel is making arrangements to have almost simultaneous broadcast of Season 4. We'll see it w- one week in, in England, and then we're going to see... The following week here in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, why not? Because Doctor Who is... When you talk about a science fiction character, mm-hmm. Doctor Who is right up there with and the best of them. Without a doubt, the longest running science fiction series. Maybe the longest running television series, period. In the world. In the yeah, world. In the world. You can keep your Baywatches and your... The original. And, and, and we're not even talking about soap operas. Yeah. We're talking about a consistently running... Well, not consistently, but a yeah. science fiction series, a television series... Doctor Who has been around for... It ran from the year of my birth, 1964, till Mm -hmm. the original series ran till 1990 in England, Mm -hmm. with only a year and a half long hiatus in the 80s due to some politics which we'll get to in this episode. Because what we're going to do is, this first episode, what we're going to do is give you 
a kind of an overview of the series itself. We're going to talk about the history, we're going to talk about some of the memorable characters, some of the background, both in the story and in the development of the series. And in the second part, we're going to tell you some about some of our favorite Doctor Who episodes. Sounds good to me. It's amazing that this show, which is an international phenomenon, started out as a kid's program. Yes, it did. It started out as a kid's program. I think until the very end of its run, the original Doctor Who was part of the BBC children's budget. Well, what it was supposed to be was originally the Doctor was supposed to interact with historical figures right. like Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. Alexander the Great. Well, you look at one of the earliest episodes, it was about the Aztec. It was supposed to teach kids about history right. while the Doctor was interacting with these or historical history figures. History and science, because yeah. you would have science fiction shows which are based on solid principles of science, and then you would have these episodes where they would go to the Wild West or ancient Rome and interact with famous figures. Marco Polo, one of the famous lost episodes. Uh, seven episode epic, which was about the, tra- the travel of Marco Polo through China. Which probably led to they're casting an elderly gentleman, uh, William Hartnell. Hartnell, as the first doctor, right. who was a grandfatherly figure, who we felt comfortable right. with him lecturing right. us our, our about history and these. Well, he was a veteran figures. of the Carry On comedy series, uh, which is pretty much unheard of here in the states. But in England, it was a major institution. It's, 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 that's their version of Saturday Night Live. Yeah, pretty much before Saturday Night so Live. Every like yeah. year or so, they would have a new Carry On film, Carry On Hawaii, Carry On Doctor. In fact. Carry On Doctor was the basis for... I'm sure you're familiar with this British TV show called Doctor in the House, which was based entirely on that movie. And it was produced originally by Verity Lambert, who is unfortunately recently passed away. Mm. Very, very gifted person. Also put out a number of other really peculiar genre shows like... And you would love this one. I'll have to find a, a copy of the DVD set. It's called Adam Animate Lymphs. It's about a 19th century pulp adventurer, Adam Adamant, who falls prey to his arch nemesis, the face, and is put in suspended animation. And he's brought oh, out I've and, heard re- of this. and yeah, revived I've heard of it, in the right. 60s. I've heard of that. Verity Lambert, she had a lot of vision, and she had a lot of vision on a very small budget. Mm-hmm. Because most BBC epi- typical Doctor Who serial would get a budget of a couple of thousand dollars. So you had to have a lot of imagination to create all these sets and all these designs. Which led to perhaps the most single brilliant idea mm-hmm. they ever had. His time machine is a police box. The it's, TARDIS. Right, the TARDIS, which stands for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. Which only means simply that it's bigger on the, the inside, inside than outside. They never quite explain how that works except in Robots of Death, where Robots he's of Death trying to explain to, to, Leela. to Leela, it's like, how big is this box? Which box is bigger? Because she asked him flat yeah. out, well, how is it that this thing is bigger on the inside right. than the outside? And he takes a couple of boxes mm. and he tries to explain it. It's just something that you just take right. as a given of the series. It works beautifully because, as all you Doctor Who fans know, the reason why it's stuck in the shape of a police box is because when he landed in 1960s London, it was London, a familiar thing in that area. And it had the chameleon circuit jam. It's supposed to make it look like whatever mm-hmm. it is in whatever time period. If it lands in ancient Rome, right. it's supposed to look like a Roman column. But since it landed there Can't and it got box. stuck in that, it looks like a police box mm-hmm. no matter where it goes. It's a brilliant concept because the incongruity of this high-tech science fiction setting and a 60 police, police box, box shows up. It's like, well, wow, you know. And it's so iconic with Doctor Who. You see the police mm-hmm. box, you know the character, right. well, that's Doctor Who. 
And the other thing that was kind of set up by Verity Lambert very early on was the idea of the companions. Because, of course, the Doctor was this brilliant adventurer who has been through many adventures through time and space, but he needed somebody to explain it to. And also, by way of explaining to the companion, would explain, explain to the to, audience. To us as well. Right. The original companions were his granddaughter, played by Carol Ford. Susan. And two of her teachers. Hers. Ian was one of them, and the other one was... And they followed her... Home because, because they couldn't find they couldn't find out anything about her. Right. You know, and just said, well, this kid knows stuff that she shouldn't know. know. Right. We can't find any records about who. And they follow her to where she lives at, which is a police box, box in the middle of a junkyard. A junkyard. Sixty four right. Trotters Lane with her grandfather. They ask him who he is, and he insists he's the Doctor. He never gets another name. Although every once in a while, like in John Pertwee years, the Doctor goes by the name of John Smith. And, and that's I, the other thing that's really great about this show, is it reinvents itself every couple of years. And I don't think it wasn't until... We get until the later years with Christopher Eccleston right. and David Ted that they really play on that thing where people say, well, he's a doctor. And people say, well, doctor or what? Yeah. And people say, well, right. exactly. Well, that's <laughs> what exactly... That's what the, the, the title of the show was to be a play on words. The doctor, doctor who. The Hartnell years, which lasted, I think it was three years, mm-hmm. was responsible for the introduction of a number of very significant characters. For example, appearing in the second episode was perhaps the most famous villain in the history of the series, the Dalek. Well, the Dalek. The Masters is Dr. Moriarty. Yeah. But I think that you can't think of Doctor Who without the Daleks. That's like the most iconic And the thing villain. I think that makes the Daleks so compelling is that they are totally inhuman looking. People make fun of them being giant salt and pepper shakers, but they have no possible human correlation whatsoever. I think that's what makes them kind of frightening, in a way. Also, the fact that the first couple of episodes they were in were very well written. In England, a brief fad of Dalek mania, they called it. Well, it was like over there, like what we had here with, with Batman. Was, with Batman. Yeah. That's probably why two of the Dalek episodes were adapted by Amicus Pictures for international play has Doctor Who and the Daleks and Dalek Invasion... Earth 2150 AD. Starring our old friend Peter, Peter Cushing, Cushing yes. as Doctor Who. It's worth knowing that in those movies, he actually was called Doctor Who. Right. He wasn't just called just a doctor. They changed things around a bit. I mean, I yeah, he was, he's more like a human... He was a human inventor. inventor. Right. He wasn't a Time Lord. And another major villain that's introduced are the Cybermen. Were once human, but have had most of their parts replaced by cybernetic metal and steel, and they are now devoted to pretty much eradicating human life. Cybernetics taken to the extreme. Well, yeah, were created by Kit Peddler, who was a noted futurist and cyberneticist. Created them as a warning against total mechanization. Well, that's a theme that's played out time and time again during the Doctor Who series. In all of the incarnations, you have machines wanting to eradicate human life. We've seen this time and time again in the Doctor Who series. Most notably with the Daleks and in the Cybermen and numerous other... And there were one other episode, other than the ones we've already mentioned, like Marco Polo and the Aztecs, that I want to bring up, which is the Web Planet. Mm-hmm. What's unique about the Web Planet is, outside of the Doctor and his companions, there are no human characters in this show. Mm-hmm. They hired a group of dancers. One alien race is of, of humanoid butterflies, mm-hmm. and the other alien race is a, like an insectile spider thing. Okay. And so they hired these dancers to play these characters, and there's no other quote-unquote human figure in the entire show. It kind of failed a bit, because they've never tried to do something like that again. But it's a very interesting sort of experiment. Also, I guess some mention should be made of the Sensorites, which was a serial. We should mention that Doctor Who, in its original form, 
was composed of serials. There would be five or six episodes every season, which would be composed of anywhere from two to the longest was 12 episodes. That was War Games. War Games was 10 episodes. The William Hartnell Dalek Master Plan. Oh, okay. Was twelve episodes. I'm thinking about the one where actually they finally got to the background of the Doctor because Time Lords. during the William Hartnell episode, mm-hmm. he was just this crazy old guy that was in a time machine traveling mm-hmm. through time. And although there were hints, because I think that he's he mentioned a couple of times that he was over five hundred years old at the time. But it wasn't until we got to, to Patrick Trouton, Patrick Trouton, who I like to call the Mo Howard, the Mo Howard. <laughs> Doctor Who, that mm-hmm. we finally we get into the Time Lord mythology. Right. But the thing about the Sensorites episode, it was a kind of an unremarkable episode, but the thing that's interesting is for fans of the new series, is that the physical look of the Sensorites was the template for the physical look of the Ood. The Ood, yeah. <laughs> in uh, the Impossible Planet, slash the Satan Pit. The Ood. The Oods. But you hit upon something right there. William Hartnell, even when he started production on this show, was not of a right mind. He was suffering from the early stages of Alzheimer's. Well, he was an old guy yeah. when he started Doctor Who. He had to be in his late mm-hmm. 60s. Yeah. Then again, nobody... Nobody what, expected this show to go on for This so was a kid's show. And mm-hmm. everybody said, okay, give the old guy a job in the last right. couple of years. But it took off. Right. It hit big. Carol Ford, who played his granddaughter Susan, would tell stories about they would go to lunch together during break. Mm-hmm. And he would get his relationship with Carol, the actress... Confused with his relationship with Susan Right And start berating her for dressing in an inappropriate manner It was obvious that he could not really keep up the rigors of an ongoing schedule and They came up with the idea that, well, he's an alien, he's a time lord They've already kind of hinted at that during the Hartnell episodes So they decided that at the end of season, the character felt so ill that he had to regenerate Which is one of the brilliant things about Doctor Who A lot of times, which I keep telling people, brilliance often happens out of necessity Right It's not something you plan They planned the thing with the regeneration Because they had to change the actors And they said well we gotta come up with an explanation Because back then it wasn't like now mm-hmm. That you just replace the actor right. And say well we bring in a new one How can we logically explain that he's a new actor Time Lords have an ability to regenerate, change, regenerate their body. In um, total, a new counting character. the new series, the Doctor has regenerated a total of ten times. Ten actors have been the Doctor of one form or the other. Mm-hmm. Patrick Trouton was the new one. He yeah. was shorter, he was younger, he had, as you put it, a Mo Howard haircut. He looked like Mo Howard He me. dressed like the little tramp. He was a lot more clowny. Yeah. Whereas William Hartnell was more like your stern grandfather, right. who you didn't mess with. Patrick Trouton was more Well, his clownish. appearance was based on Charlie Chaplin's appearance. Yeah. The thing that was clever about the Patrick Trouton character was that he played up the idea that people thought he was an idiot. Because if you figured if people thought I was an idiot, they're not going to be watching me too closely. No, and they didn't. They underestimated his capabilities. Right. And that's how he got the upper hand on a lot of his opponents. His major companion, who pretty much lasted for his entire run, was a character called Jamie, who was a Scottish Highlander. Was introduced. Okay. I think it may have been actually the second serial that they did with Patrick Trouton called The Highlanders. And I think it's worth mentioning that during this period with William Hartnell and right. Patrick Trouton, this is when we had a lot of the historical right. episodes. We had a lot of the Doctor not being involved with we alien see a races return to it when John Nathan Turner takes over in 1980. For this period, we had historical episodes with right. the Doctor going back in periods of time and interacting with historical characters and events. And events, yeah. There was actually a lot of experimentation in those first two years. There's also an episode in, in the Petronian era called The Mind Robber, where they get trapped in the world of fiction. 
this is when we start getting a lot of the science fiction yeah. elements mm-hmm. coming in. As a matter of fact, this is the one where it is definitely stated that he's a time lord. Right. This is it. Where they had the whole thing with the, the War, War Games episode. Right, the War Games episode. But we also had a couple of other major companions from this era. Was One was Victoria. Mm-hmm. Played by the very attractive young Deborah Watling, who was the daughter of a Victorian scientist who was killed by the Daleks in an episode called The Evil of the Daleks. You got the impression, this is going to be a recurring role, you'll see where you have these characters who you get the impression are meant to be a little bit more on an equal level with the Doctor scientifically, mm-hmm. but turn out to be just girl school screamers. Looking at you, Martha Jones. This is back during, yeah. what, the 60s? You got to give it a funny little- when we get to John Pertwee and they introduce Liz Shaw. Who is very much his equal. They only keep her for a season and decide, pack her off. No, right. And replace her with the utterly detestable Joe Grant. Who nobody likes. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But we'll get to that. We'll get to her. There were some more additions to the Doctor Who rogues gallery. The biggest one, I guess, the one that most people might be familiar with, are the Ice Warriors. Denizens of Mars, who are very warlike, but very honorable, in a very distinctive green armor. Made them kind of look like giant walking squashes. Also, the Yetis. Yeah, the Yetis. Were a major villain who looked like... you got to understand, Doctor Who was being done on a budget of a couple of thousand dollars. They didn't have a lot of money to, to put on these special effects. So sometimes the monsters look kind of odd. The Yeti was this big furry thing with no discernible features and just big claws. Like yeah. walking shag carpet. Of course, the Warlord and the War Games. The Cybermen, though, really came into their own during this period. Cause he, exactly, yeah. He fought the Cybermen a number of times. That was the big Cybermen period because I don't think it was during any other period except for this one, the Patrick Trotton. Yeah. That, that he fought the Cybermen so, so many, many times. times. Unfortunately, most of these episodes from these first two Doctors are lost because BBC was in the habit of erasing videotape to put new shows on them. Every once in a while, Mm -hmm. as you know, they would do episodes where all the doctors would team up and they would have to get other actors Mm -hmm. to actually recreate scenes because they didn't have the footage from especially the William Hartnell era. The William Hartnell era is pretty intact. There are missing episodes. The Mm -hmm. one that is almost totally gone is Patrick Trotten. Really? They, but what they've been doing with the BBC television re-releases mm-hmm. is they've hired an animation house. They have the audio track. Mm-hmm. They'll animate the scenes that are missing. Okay. Well, that was an experiment they did with Invasion, which was a very significant show because it introduces UNIT, the United Nations International Task Force, which is a major, major player in the next incarnation of the Doctor. Which is forerunner of Torchwood, in a way. It was basically the answer to the, the super spy mania that was sweeping the world at the time. That's basically what the John Pertwee incarnation of the Doctor yeah. was. He was James Bond. We're talking about the James right. Bond Doctor Who. Because Patrick tried to decide after three years. In fact, he later on advised he was good friends with Peter Davison. Three years is about enough mm-hmm. for a person to be a Dr. doctor. Who. It's so, like James Bond. Yes. Patrick tried to step down after three years. There was like a big search as to who the new Doctor Who would be. They settled on a song and dance man, of all people, who was perhaps most notable for being in a couple of musical comedies, including A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. John Pert, yeah, he was in the stage version and the movie right. version. Yes, John he was. Pert- he became the third Doctor. Producer at the time was Barry Letts. Barry Letts had a very peculiar idea as to what to do with this time-traveling, spacefaring Doctor. Mm-hmm. He, in the war game, set up the situation where the Time Lords finally catch up with the Doctor, and we find out that the Doctor has been in violation. Has been, has been exiled. He's been running from his people. Ever since. He actually stole the TARDIS. He had no right to it. Right. <laughs> and in fact, 
His TARDIS is absolute right. model that they had put in mothball years ago, mm-hmm. which was the only reason why he they were able to get it. Right? They have much more advanced TARDIS. They catch up to him, and they said, "Okay, we got you." But however, he's done a lot of good. You've, yes, so they give him the choice to be exiled to this planet Earth. Been earmarked as a nexus point for a lot of future trouble in the universe. And they force they force him, him to regenerate. They force his regeneration. They're giving him pictures of alternate bodies, and he's like, no, that one's too fat. Mm-hmm. That one's too old. That one's too... <laughs> Eventually, what he ends up being is John Pertwee, who was a little bit younger than Patrick Trouton. A tall, very ele- tall, very elegant pers- gentleman. If you can with, kind of imagine... white hair. Yes. He looks a little... Very hawkish face, kind of yeah. like... If you can kind of imagine an aristocratic-looking Rod Stewart. That's John and Pertwee. And he wears a frilly shirt right. and the velvet jacket. Very Edwardian dress. Very, yeah. He looked cool. And he was definitely... So he was... Exiled to Earth. They stole a key component to the TARDIS. The TARDIS would not give him. TARDIS wouldn't work. So he ends up... It wouldn't travel through time and space anymore. So he ends up going to UNIT and working for them as their unpaid scientific advisor. This introduces a whole new cast of characters. Most importantly, the Brigadier. And gives life to the series. Right. As a whole, because... Now the doctor, he's this brilliant time lord that's stuck on one time, which to me yeah. is the worst kind of sentence for a time lord. How else do you punish somebody who has the ability to travel anywhere they want you to? You take their keys away, basically. You stick them in one time and space. Mm. But however, time lords, as we find out later on, they had a plan right, for why they stuck there. They're on there. the cusp where it's becoming noticed by other alien races. Exactly. So the Doctor becomes a de facto protector of the Earth. And as we know from the whole Doctor Who series, mm-hmm. the Doctor has been the agent of the Time Lords, the White Guardians, right. the other, that this is what you're supposed to do. When he's put on Earth... And eventually in the Russell the T. Davies, they actually codify it because they say that he chose in the Doctor because he's the person who makes you better than you are. Yeah. We have the John Pertwee Doctor. Mm-hmm. He's stuck on Earth. He's, he's got, got a, a supporting... that don't work. For the first time, he's got a supporting cast. Yeah. Because you've he... got the Brigadier, who I think we should mention, Nicholas Courtney played him. I think that he is unique in that he's acted opposite every Doctor in one form or another except for William Hartnell. Because even the ones that he did not show up, like he didn't show up in the Peter Davison era. Although he was in the Five Doctors special. Okay. So that counts. He wasn't in uh, the Paul McGann movie, obviously, but he's appeared in Big Finish and CD Adventures opposite him. Okay. So he has acted with pretty much every Doctor, with the exception of Hardnell, who was in the original series. Also, there was Sergeant Benton. Sergeant Benton. Captain Harry Yates. The good right arm of right. the Brigadier. <laughs> he was always and right Captain there. Captain Harry Yates, who was kind of James Bond light. Mm-hmm. He was the one who would do the undercover work. There was some sort of implied relationship between him and Joe Grant. Now, they had originally given him this fiery scientist by the name of Dr. Liz Shaw, who was a lot of fun because she was one of these people who didn't take the doctor's shit, who would not let him walk all over. Which, as we go on, folks, you realize that Tom really likes this. So yes, Tom likes it. That don't take the doctor's shit. Me, personally, I kind of like it when the doctor gives shit. Right. But that's probably because I'm more of a But doctor. apparently, Barry Letts didn't like the chemistry between Carolyn Jones, who played... Liz Shaw and John Pertwee because she was replaced after year one by Joe Grant, played by Katie Manning. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, this is one terrible freaking goddamn Ooh, companion. Is the companion that 
is universally hated. I can't think of anybody that I can think of. Gray. Yeah, okay. I was about to say I can think of other companions who are hated worse, but she's really nah, bad. I've seen only okay. She's reasonably attractive, but she's got this annoying, so annoying voice. So what? Yeah. Her character, she's like an empty-headed little doxy. You would expect to see in the background of a Beatles movie. Terrible in every sort of sense of the word. She was miserable. She so survived for two years. She lasted quite a while. She lasted. And you know something, folks? In television, two years is a long right. time. Two and years. we should also mention, before we leave Liz Shaw, though, that that season was also the season that introduced one of the greatest enemies of the Doctor, the Master. Played by a very gentle, very good character actor by the name of Roger Delgado. If... John Pertwee was Sherlock Holmes. The Master was intentionally designed to be Professor Moriarty. Exactly. Grand schemes. Never thought in the small scale. Always thought in the well, big picture. every hero is only as good as their villain. Yeah. You can't have a Superman without Lex Luthor. You can't have you Batman can't without have the Joker. Batman without the Joker. So, in order to have a Doc... You have to have... You can't have Doc Savage without Sunlight. There you go. you got to have a villain... That is equal to your hero. Right. Otherwise, there's no challenge for him. Doctor Who has got the mess. He's got the Daleks. He's got the Santaris. This guy kicked more ass over the universe. Santaris are the major villain that we're going to talk about next. Major contribution in the Alien Gallery. There's a good reason why Harlan Ellison has called Doctor Who the Sword of Justice from Gallifrey. Right. Mm-hmm. Because he's kicked more ass right. over the universe than just about mm-hmm. anybody else you can name. He's put whole races down. Now, the, uh, the Master was in the majority of episodes in that first John Pertwee season. And unfortunately, Roger Delgado got into a car accident and was killed. Yeah. I and out of respect for him, Barry Letts decided not to recast the part. Yeah. So the Master just suddenly disappeared as quickly as he arrived. The other major character, which you uh, touched base on, my favorite of the alien races is the Suntarans. Which yeah. introduced in the first episode, introduced probably the best companion in the original series. The one everybody remembers, the one everybody has a crush on, Miss Sarah Jane Smith. Played by Elizabeth Sladen. Bow down, folks. Give yes. respect to Elizabeth Sladen. She was Sarah a- Jane Rule. After Joe freaking empty headed Rule. Sarah Jane is hands down the best companion. Period. Me and you can fight with Rusty Knives over the episode. Oh, no, 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 no. Even though they kind of hinted at that in that episode Graduation Day in the Rusty Davies series, if it got down to a cat fight, Billy Piper was going down. Yeah. Rose Tyler would go down. down. Sarah Jane Smith is the best companion. Okay, you remember, I've occasionally got into arguments with people who are totally devoted to the new series and who keep telling me that Sarah Jane Smith was useless. Bullshit. 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 She was a reporter, she was a crack shot, and she kicked as much ass as the doctor did during his her Sarah time. Sarah Jane was hands down. Sarah Jane was right there with him. You felt that out of the human companions, right. Sarah Jane was probably the closest one. He You had, really got the impression that there was a genuine uh, respect, love and res- respect. Not to, love in the way that Russell T. Davies thinks it of it. Right. A genuine love and respect between the two of them. Exactly. She was one of the few companions that lasted a full season of one character, then carried over into the next one. Well, ca- she next started one. with the John Perkins Right, and then, be- then became the major companion for the first two years of the, the John, John Baker, Baker era. Yeah. The Santarans, though, this cloned race that looked kind of like the evil older brother of Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> very, very warlike. <laughs> Good way to put it. Had this very weird way of 
talking with a very syllabance. And that's one of the great things about, about Doctor Who aliens is that they all have very distinctive vocal patterns. The Daleks have their... Exterminate! Exterminate! The Cybermen had that very... But, but it's what I love about the Daleks is the single-minded... Yes! Exterminate! <laughs> well, wait a minute. Can't we talk about... No, exterminate! John Pert, we decided to leave. He lasted four... Four memorable four seasons. Four memorable seasons. One with Liz Shaw, two with Joe Grant, midway through the Time Lords lifted their embargo because yeah, because he helped them defeat Omega in the, yeah. the uh, seminal episode, the Three Doctors, where mm-hmm. all three extant Doctors teamed up. So he traveled with Joe around the galaxy, even though they lifted the embargo and they restored the ability right. of the TARDIS to travel through time and space. He still felt the obligation to help out yeah. Unit, and he would come with other side trip. What happened after that was we then got. Elizabeth Sladen slash Sarah Jane Smith for a year. That resulted in the Doctor being dreadfully injured mm-hmm. in the episode Planet of the Spiders. And this is the one that most people remember from America when you think of the original series. That's what I remember. Tom Baker. Yeah. He was a bricklayer. He was a bricklayer. When he got the call that he was going to be Doctor Who, in fact, he tells the story that he went back to the site that he was doing his construction on and said, oh. He finished the job. He finished the job. He finished told the job. Him, I can't come back next week. Yeah. I'm going to be Doctor Who. The foreman didn't believe him. And he laughed at him. <laughs> yes. He said, you'll be back next week. Mm-hmm. And he told him. But, to give him credit, a lot of us would have said, well, screw yeah, you and give you, you the you. No, he went back and finished the job and said, listen, I can't come back. I'm going to And Tom yeah. Baker was on that show for a record Seven years. I think he holds the record. He holds the record, yes. Philip Hinchcliffe became the new producer. Barry Letts stayed on for one more year as an overseer. And Philip Hinchcliffe is a great, great man. Mm -hmm. He is probably responsible for the greatest four years of Doctor Who's history. I know that I, myself, I discovered Doctor Mm -hmm. Who... When they showed it here in Brooklyn, New York... Part of Lionheart Television... On Channel 9... And they were showing like... 3 o'clock in the afternoon. BBC had a syndication on called Lionheart Syndication. Mm -hmm. They decided in 77, I want to say, 77, 78, Mm -hmm. that they were going to syndicate Doctor Who to America. They did a package of 90 episodes comprising the first four years of Tom Baker's run and sold it to syndication. Channel 9 picked it up. WWR picked it up. Channel 9. Because I remember they showed it every afternoon Mm -hmm. at about 3 o'clock in original half-hour format. Right. Where every half-hour... Although they did... With the cliffhanger. And I know that I would not leave my house on Saturday until I saw Doctor Who. Although they did tack on those Howard De Silva intros and outros. I don't remember that. I remember just seeing the episodes clean. Mm -hmm. They had the... Right. With the triangular Doctor Who thing Mm -hmm. and... The Tom Baker face with right. the stuff. Ah, yes! I got to see Doctor Who! <laughs> and the thing that Philip Hinchcliffe noted when Tom Baker took over was that there was a spike in college-age viewers. Because here was a doctor that was their age. He was the youngest doctor at the time, and would be until Peter Davison comes along. Mm-hmm. He was their age. He dressed like them because he t- put on this, well, this he, bohemian ragtag he, sort of... The Tom Baker Doctor Who was rocking the fedora before yeah. Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. He had the scarf, the 16-foot-long scarf. Oh, you he know had, the story about the scarf, right? He had the coat. Philip Hinchcliffe went to this woman who was part of the costume department at BBC and said, we'd like you to make a scarf for Doctor Who. He went to the store and put a whole bunch of yarn. Mm-hmm. He figured she would choose whatever color she wanted to make the scarf. Okay. She thought Philip Hinchcliffe wanted her to use all the wool. Mm-hmm. That's why the scarf is something like 
15, 20 feet long. Well, it worked because it's a... And he uses it as an extension of his body. It's an extremely unique look in a lot of episodes. Tom Baker uses that scarf as an extension. You know why I think that character came across so much? Because Mm -hmm. I know for me, when I saw the Tom Baker Doctor Who, I liked it so much because for a young man such as myself, this is a hero that didn't use weapons, that used his intelligence to solve his problems and to conquer his enemies. Mm -hmm. He didn't really like using weapons, and I don't even remember... That's why one of my favorite Tom Baker episodes is The Pyramid of Mars. And that's that, that whole fourth episode is one logic puzzle after another that the Doctor has to solve. He has to solve, and he doesn't use violence. Mm-hmm. If he has to, he can. really would not like to well, do that. The, the first season that he was on, uh-huh. they did have Harry Sullivan, played by Ian Martyr. Who did the physical Because stuff. originally they had contacted an actor who was a lot older, mm-hmm. who was famous in England for playing a children's television character called Mr. Pastry. The talks broke down with him because this actor thought that they wanted to do the Mr. Pastry character as Doctor Who. They ended up going with a much younger, because it was totally by chance. Let's and Hinchcliffe were totally exhausted from trying to figure this out. They decided to take a break, went to the local cinema, saw Golden Voyage of Sinbad, right. saw Tom Baker Tom and said, Baker. that guy. That yeah. guy. Because he was a younger doctor, having this other guy running around hitting things was mm. kind of a little incongruous. But Tom Baker became so iconic with right. Doctor Who for so long. Well, because, yeah. And I know for me, even today, that's still my favorite Doctor right. Who because that's the first one. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know there was any other Doctor Who's I mean, back you go then. to other countries and you ask them who Doctor Who is, they'll probably describe the Tom Baker character. But we're talking about when I first discovered him, mm-hmm. we didn't have, and I know some of you out there don't believe this, but back then, didn't we didn't have, the, have internet. the internet. We didn't have VHS. We only saw what was important. The only the reason I learned about other Doctors was because, remember the comic book art gallery on 53rd Street between 3rd and 2nd? Sure. They used to import Doctor Who magazine. That's the only, exactly. And that's how I learned about Patrick Trouton and John Perwee. And they also imported the Target novelizations. So I would yeah, buy the novelizations right. and learn about these adventures that the Doctor had had in other guises. That's how I found out about the Patrick Trouton mm-hmm. and right. John Pertwee because I bought the novelizations. Right. But as far as from television, the only Doctor I knew was Tom Baker. And I didn't know there were other doctors. When I found him, mm-hmm. it was like, oh my God, this guy kicks ass. Right. He's incredible. Now, the Philip Hinchcliffe era lasted the first four years of Tom Baker's run. His idea was that Doctor Who was a gothic horror show. All of the stories that he did were somehow related to some form of iconic movie monster. First year, actually, was Old Home Week because they were kind of, I guess, nervous about people responding to the new Doctor, so they had, in the same season, the Cybermen show up. The Santarans show up. Mm-hmm. The Daleks show up. There's a giant robot in one episode. Well, that's the yeah. first one. The, the Doctor robot. Who and the yes. giant robot. When he regenerates yes. and he's in a new body. And it's the first Tom Baker show. And then when they come back with the second season, you get such great episodes like The Pyramids of Mars, which is a mummy show. There is an episode called The Brain of Morbius, which is actually kind of a bit of tat, 
but it's a Frankenstein's monster show. Right. There's an episode called Face of Evil, which is about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Of course, one of my other favorites, which features one of the best of the human villains that Doctor Who's ever faced, was The Seeds of Doom, where you had that one character played by Tony Harris, who was the millionaire who, with the phobia about being touched. That was, who was the one that was set on the oil rig, and they found seeds yes, in this. Yes, the crinoid. The crinoid, there you go. Some okay. pretty scary Scary crap. There was a lot of scary shit in the Tom Baker era. And when, when you really think about it. When Elizabeth Slade decided she wanted to move on, another companion that's very fondly remembered, Leela, played by the, Louise Jameson. The primitive. And she was interesting. A lot of guys love her because, of course, Louise Jameson runs around gay for bikini. Mm-hmm. For most of this kind of tight leather corset and yeah. shirt thing. But I'm not too fond of her for that. But the, I love the interaction where... The problem with Tom Baker was Tom Baker got bored very easily. Hinchcliffe and later on Graham Williams and John Nathan Turner tried to find new ways to engage him as as an actor. Mm -hmm. And in Leela, what he was trying to do was the idea that it was a My Fair Lady sort of situation. Well, that's why his performance was so memorable, because the thing with the Jelly Baby, that was the thing that Tom Baker did to keep himself interested. Mm -hmm. He actually hated the idea of having... Companions. He kept trying to get Philip Hinchcliffe to let him do a season without a companion. He's uh-huh. like, you want a companion? Give me an electronic parrot. Well, the thing with K-9, they had a sequence in an uh, episode I just saw recently, the Rebos operation, right. where he has a thing with K-9, where he's talking with K-9 and he's saying, well, do we like her? Where Romana, right. the time lady, comes on where they got to go search mm-hmm. for the kid's job. I've heard that was improvised, that he right. did, because, you know, he said, well, do we like her? And K-9 said, yes, master. Right. <laughs> and he's doing this whole thing. Well, we don't think we like her. And then she's coming back. Well, you don't have a choice. Do you, you don't have a choice, do you? But I have heard that Tom Baker did a lot of improvised stuff mm-hmm. because he got easily bored. Right. Even though I'm not a big fan of the Leela character, there are some amazing episodes. We talked about one last night, Robots of Death. Robots of Death. Which is a legitimate murder mystery. It's an Agatha Christie murder it's, mystery. It's, and then there were none with robots in it. It's ten millennials yeah. on a huge mining ship that's mining and of course the doctor as usual lands on it Mm. and Leela says well can't you control this thing he said well of course I can't of course one of my favorite episodes which did not make the top three cut the Talents of Wang Chiang. Tom Baker well, was a Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes fan. It's a Sherlock. He even walked away yes. in a deerstalker. This is another thing to get Tom Baker interested in playing the character. You like Sherlock Holmes. We'll give you an episode where you're playing Sherlock Holmes fighting Fu Manchu. And that's what it is. It's Doctor Who versus Fu Manchu. Although originally, interesting little bit of information, Magnus Greel, who was the main villain in that serial was supposed to be the master. It makes a lot more sense when you think about the problem that Magnus Greel has with his molecular cohesion. It's something they come back to when they do the deadly assassin later on. Okay, where the doctor ascends to be the president when right. he comes back home to mm-hmm. Gallifrey. It's a whole right. scheme for him to uncover an assassin. Right. Eventually, to, you know. Philip Hinchcliffe decides he needs to move on. Mm-hmm. He is succeeded by Graham Williams. Not a great period in the series. He introduces a character called Romana, who is a time lady, and introduces the concept of the black and white guardian. The whole first season of Graham Williams' run is a story about the hunt for the key to time. The other night I watched the first episode, the Rebos Operation, Mm -hmm. where is that the doctor, he's traveling in his TARDIS, and is stopped by the white guardian. He walks out of the TARDIS... And the white guardian is, is sitting at the... He's a southern gentleman. Right. So the thing he, I love about he's the... Sip, he's sipping a mint julep. 
Williams had the smarts to put two really excellent actors as both the White and the, the Black Guardian. As the White Guardian, he got Sir Ralph Richardson. As the Black Guardian, he got Valentine Diel. It might not be famous to Americans, although his probably his biggest role in America was he was in The Haunting, the original one, not that travesty that Jan de Bonk created. The White Guardian mm-hmm. says to the doctor, well, I want you to go on a mission for me. Right. Obviously, we know that the White Guardian is nobody to be fooled with because the Time Lords are nobody right. to be fooled with, but the doctor calls him Sir. Yes. He defers to him, right. and mm-hmm. the White Guardian says, I want you to undertake this mission for me. There are six sections of the Key, the key of Time, right. and I need them to be put together. Because time is going out of balance, I need to realign it. And I want you to find a second. And the doctor said, well, is there any way I can get out of this? This is a very good yes. line. The white guard says, sure you can. He said, you don't have to do this. And the doctor said, well, nothing will happen to me. And the white guard says, yes, nothing will happen to you. <laughs> ever. <laughs> and the doctor looks and says, you want me to volunteer for yes, this? Don't right. you? And it's a Bruce Willis right. moment that you want me to follow. And the white guard says, yeah. He says, okay, well. Yeah. And, he says, okay. and it's a very refreshing moment because at that point, Tom Baker had become kind of invincible. Yeah. He had his magic wand and his sonic screwdriver and his magic dog. So it was kind of difficult to make him nervous and make him sweat. Yeah, and if you see the scene, you see where he's obviously his doctor is like, Okay, well, yeah. I'm good. And he gets the assistant. Played off. originally by a Scottish actress by the name of Mary Tam. Extraordinarily beautiful young lady. Extraordinarily beautiful. Put her as one of the three most beautiful women that have ever been on Doctor Who. Who is also a Time Lord, like yes. him. In fact, she's a recent graduate of the Time Lord Academy. A point that she makes quite yes. plain to the Doctor. One of the reasons why I like this character so much is that she doesn't take the Doctor's shit. And she lets the Doctor know. Well, right. I graduated from the Academy. And then we find out in this episode that, that the Doctor, out. he flunked out. She makes it very, well, you know, well, I graduated with such and such a score and you graduated. Basically, you had to do was, three tries. He flunked out. However, he's got more practical knowledge right. because he's been traveling around. It's the classic. He was, exi- he was an expert. And it is the difference between learned knowledge and acquired knowledge, and that's what makes it so great. It's the thing, much like something that we've talked about that we've had mm-hmm. a lot of admiration for, the Howard the Duck series, which was, in a lot of ways, was an exploration of Howard the Duck was a guy that self-taught right. and so-called street knowledge. Mm-hmm. The doctor, in a way, that's his thing. He's acquired street knowledge. So you think about it, the doctor is a street punk. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> so let's face it, a lot of his stuff that he's got is that he's been through it, which is what he tells Romana. He says, listen, you've been bopping through the universe as long as I have. Right. You... You, know, you learn you get, things. It's stuff you can't learn mm-hmm. in a classroom. You have to be out here in it. And I think he does, in the time that they look for the key to time, right. he does impart this to her. But you even see, even during this key to time series, Tom Baker was getting far, 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 far more bored than he really has been previously. That's why you have an episode like the Androids of Tara, which is the Count of Monte Cristo done with robots. Mm-hmm. Where Tom Baker gets to do sword fighting and gets to do all yeah. these other cool things that he doesn't necessarily get to do. He was a very physical doctor. Right. I think more than... Well, John Pertwee was John very Pertwee, because remember, John Pertwee was the one who... The Venusian the Ven- Aikido. Venusian Aikido. <laughs> Why would Venusians apprentice Aquino with the army? But But you were telling me that Mary Tam got pregnant, which is why she had to leave the show? Right. She got pregnant, which is why she left the show. 
And that's when they introduced Lala Ward. Lala Ward was actually in the last serial of the Key to Time sequence. Mm -hmm. And apparently Tom Baker took kind of a fancy to her. And I think this was another attempt by Graham Williams to keep him interested. Graham Williams was not a very strong producer, as we learn in the next two years that he's producing. Okay. Because these stories get sillier and sillier, and they're more about Tom Baker's whims than anything else. Some of the, the silliest, stupidest stuff that ever happened... During that course of time, Lala Ward was a much different Romana. I think you referred to her as a schoolgirl once. Well, as you pointed yeah. out yourself, she runs around in a schoolgirl right. outfit. She's much more giggly mm-hmm. and sillier, whereas the first Romana... Was very austere, was very, very regal. Re- regal. You look at well, that's a timely. She just had that air about her aristocracy. Even Tom Baker, as silly as he was, he pulled it off that he you looked at him. You, said, you, you looked at him and you said, well, there's something more about right. him. You did get the inspect that when Mary Tam was Romana, Tom Baker treated her with some respect. As befitted her station. Right. I mean, these are time lords. These are people that go across time and space as easily as you and I right. do the bath mark. That's what time lords are. Why else call them time lords? I, mean, I think also part of the problem with the Graham Williams, and this is going to be heresy, I think, for some fans, was that he entrusted the script editing for one year to Douglas Adams. Hey, I have great respect for the man for Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, Hitchhiker's the thing was, the Galaxy. Doug Adams had a set number of jokes and just recycled them over and over and over again. Okay. He did one really incredible, incredible script in The City of Death. The other scripts were just kind of goofy and silly, like The Creature from the Pit and The Horns of Nyman. They were all just really weak overall. And by the time that Graham Williams was leaving, the new and the last producer of the original series, John Nathan Turner, decided he had to do some top-to-bottom changes. And he did that immediately, starting with he redesigned the theme song, he redesigned the opening and closing credits, replacing Mm -hmm. that corridor effect, if you and I remember, with a star field which would make the Doctor's face. He undermined K-9. In the first episode, the Leisure Hive, K-9 is told by Romano, who's really pissed off at him, to go fetch, throw something into the water, then realizes how stupid that is, because K-9 shorts out. Yeah, because he goes in the water and... The the effects of John Nathan Turner initially are incredibly noticeable. There's a lot more hard science on the show. They took Tom aside, and he was very strong-willed. John Nathan Turner would not let Tom Baker get away with half of the crap he wanted to get away with. Mm. But he also sold him on the idea of the Doctor being a much different person. Much more mysterious, much more regal in his own right. Mm -hmm. He gave him an entire redesign of his outfit, which is much darker, emphasizing crimsons and mahogany. He also, unfortunately, introduced the question mark motif, which is in every Doctor from here on in, which was really obtrusive in some cases. There were some great stories in that first year. There was the E-Space trilogy, which introduced Adric, who would have been a great companion for Tom Baker. Now, see, Remember now, how we talked about... Uh, okay, now see, now this is where your area expertise mm. gets into it, because, and I think it's only fair we tell people, this is our, our area of expertise. I'd be willing to bet you I've seen every Tom Baker episode. Right. I've seen every Christopher Eccleston mm-hmm. episode. I've seen every David Tennant episode. I'm not familiar with the Colin Baker Right, which is my favorite doc. Mm -hmm. Tom Baker being mine, right, next to Christopher Eccleston. I thought Christopher Eccleston, if another one, then that 
Marvel scenes at Everybody the, Lives. Everybody Lives. Everybody. Oh. Christopher Eccleston. The thing I love about Christopher Eccleston oh is he my had God. that. Because it was like, it was such a delight to him. Yes. Finally, he got to an adventure and nobody he died. Joy. He had yeah. joy. Nobody in died. Because if you look at that first season, but we'll get to that when we get to the, the first season. Of the but new. yeah, I'm not familiar so, with some of the other doctors okay. as you are. That last season, there was a, a sequence of three episodes. This is another thing that uh, John Hathaway liked to do was he would take three serials and link them together. Yeah. So you had the E-Space trilogy, where the TARDIS got booted out of normal space into mm-hmm. another dimension that they refer to as E-Space. E-space. During the course of that time, he picked up another companion called Adric, mm-hmm. who was a young man played by a first-time and, to the best of my knowledge, last-time actor, Matthew Waterhouse, who was a young man, very, very talented in mathematics, so he was supposed to have a function on the ship. During the couple of episodes that he had with Tom Baker, it was a really nice father and son relationship almost between the Doctor and Adric. Then came Nyssa. Once again, a much younger character. And I think what John Nathan was doing was... Was trying to put a younger crew in the TARDIS. Because Tom Baker had gotten older. Noticeably older. His hair had gone gray. Yeah, well Tom Baker had been doing it for seven years. And also also, Tom Baker was suffering from some serious nerve damage at this time. Tom Baker was hitting the bottle uh, pretty hard. Well, I think he was hitting the bottle to relieve the pain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, if you watch some of those later shows, he does a lot of this, where he wipes his mouth with his hand a mm -hmm. lot, or will, like, cover his mouth. Mm -hmm. That's because this nerve disease that he was suffering from, Mm -hmm. he was no longer having control over his salivatory function. Yes, salivatory, So he was drooling. You would get the impression that what John Nathan was planning was that the doctor has this father figure to these two brilliant, in their own right, they were both scientists, brilliant young people guiding them into what they could become as adults. You're right. Then Tom Baker decided he wasn't coming back. As we mentioned earlier, he's holding the record right. now for the longest John Nathan time. Turner seven years. went with someone that he worked with on a show called All Creatures Great and Small, who was the youngest doctor in the history of the show at the time, Peter Davison. Peter Davison. That record is now held by David Tennant. Peter Davison was a much different doctor. He was much more rash. He was much more physical. He also was a total blundering idiot. He made a <laughs> lot of mistakes. And I don't say that in a negative way. Well, that's a good thing about yeah. when you have a new doctor come mm-hmm. along. It reinvigorates the series. It's a new personality. He has the same basic template of all the other doctors, but it's this new persona that's layered on it. They usually take a couple uh, of episodes. episodes so that he can find his way and discover, right. well, who am I now? What am mm-hmm. I supposed to be? You know? The other thing that Johnny Turner did around this time was reintroduce the Master. Utilize really good actor by the name of Anthony Ainley. He introduced them in another one of these three-linked sets, which is loosely referred to as The Return of the Master, which I'm going to talk about in the second episode, because that's one of my choices. Okay. The promise of this Master was that he was going to be a scary-ass villain. In his first appearance, he nearly causes the destruction of the universe at least twice. Cool. And the other thing that they... Is they I've added, always wanted to do that myself. What, what, destroy the universe? Yeah, why not? Oh, why not? The other character <laughs> that gets introduced during this time is Tegan Jovanka. Another popular... A very popular... A very popular, popular I can't companion. stand her. I can't stand her, myself. Johnny Nathan Turner was trying to... If she is played by Kristen Bell, you'd like her. Of course I would like her. <laughs> John Nathan Turner was mindful of increasing audience shares in other countries. Okay. So Taken Jovanka was intentionally meant to be an Australian companion. She was Australian. She was Australian. She was played by an English woman, has a parody of an Australian. This is a thing we're going to see later on when we get to one of my favorite companions, for all the wrong reasons, Perry Papalian Brown, who 
I would rather have her play Parapagillian Brown, Nicola Bryant, than Kristen Bell. Because okay. she's, she's a hot little thing that is Nicole Bryan. But anyway, she's annoying, she's strident, she's rude, and immediately she takes over the TARDIS. The other two companions become secondary characters. This is the period where the TARDIS really gets crowded. Yeah. And I've seen a couple of episodes with the Peter Davidson. It's very difficult and, seeing and, the blocking. The thing I take away from that period is mm-hmm. that, which is probably why I don't like it, is because I said... It's too damn crowded. Right. The Doctor works best when he's only has one or at most two two companions. The thing was, of course, with the younger Doctor, the whole father figure thing doesn't work. I think what they should have done is they should have maybe got... And they did get rid of Adric very quickly. Mm-hmm. Adric is killed off, in fact, which is was big news because... Companions didn't get killed. No, they didn't. Doctor just yes. dropped them all. Right. Either back where he found them or someplace right. else where they wanted to be dropped. Well, there was that whole motif of the female companion finding somebody in an episode where they fell in love with them and decided to stay and play house with them, which uh, was really ridiculous. The other thing that reflects... Except for Leela, who actually I think was the only companion... No, Leela... He Leela? left on, on Gallifrey. Gallifrey yeah. he fell in love with the captain of the guard. Yeah, yeah that's his home world. He never left anybody else on Gallifrey. The thing that we notice about the John Nathan Turner years that starts in the Peter Davison era is that it's a bloodthirsty time. There's a lot of death and destruction. I think this is a case of Turner trying to make the show more adult mm-hmm. and kind of failing because he thinks, oh, if we get a lot of death and killing, that'll make it look more adult. And it's very dark and it's a very depressing and sad. Probably why I never warmed up to the Peter Davidson era. I mean, there's some good episodes. Because like every episode I watch, yeah. it was, damn, well, this is like, you know. There are some great episodes in there. One of my favorite episodes, which is just about Miss making it to the second episode where we talk about our favorites, was The Visitation. Okay. Which is set during the time of the Black Plague in London, in the London Fire. And featured a great villain that they never brought back called the Terraleptals, who are these like giant ambulatory turtle lizard things. Their gig was they were very warlike, but they loved beauties. And they created war machines. Mm-hmm. They were encrusted in jewels and very like almost art decoish gaudy. See, I have to get into some more of those. I've never really got I've seen some of the Peter Davison stuff right. and I've seen some of the Colin Baker stuff. Mm-hmm. Colin as much as I love Colin Baker has the Doctor, the stories are dreadful. The stories are just doubt-out shit during his run. The other thing that John Nathan Turner did was introduced two-parters again. Shorter stories, in addition to the traditional four-episode format. Now, see, that's one thing that I kind of miss, since, like I said earlier, folks, I was first exposed to Doctor Who seeing it on Saturday right. afternoon right. in the half-hour thing, and I had the cliffhanger, and I had to come back every right. week. I really do like so that do kind I. of format. So you know, I. I've gotten used to... The whole hour episode thing, mm-hmm. but I really would wish they would go back right. to that sometime. I really do. Because I mentioned earlier, Peter Davison was a friend of Patrick Trout, and Patrick Trout advised him that he should stay for three years only. It's like James Bond, because even Sean Connery advised that I, I read somewhere that he talked to Pierce Brosnan. Right. He said, only do it for three or four more. Right. And then move on mm-hmm. with your career. He said, take the money. Right. Take the notoriety that it gives you and do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's there was it. talk for a while because Jonathan Hurd dearly loved the Patrick Trouton years. Mm-hmm. That's why the Cybermen became like the most major opponent because they fight every doctor from here on out. For a while, it looked like Jonathan Turner tried to convince Patrick Trouton to come back. And we should make notice of the fact that, because I also watched the, the uh, Curse of Fatal Death, which was a comedy Doctor Who special for that the was done. But it also had a bunch of 
other actors mm-hmm. that we should name that at one time were approached to play Doctor mm-hmm. Who, such as Hugh Grant, Rowan Atkinson. He was approached to be the Doctor after Colin Baker. He says to this day, he, he regrets, regrets not taking it. Jim Broadbent. Mm-hmm. Joanna Lumley. And also, at one time, it was rumored there was a big-budget American version right. to be made. And Morgan he, Freeman was approached. And you know who was going to be the villain To that play that, who? Vincent Price. Vincent Price, yeah. So these were a lot of actors. Mm-hmm. And they said that. They asked us. Right. But for one reason or another, they couldn't, couldn't do play it. Doctor Who. They got rid of Adric. They got rid of Nyssa. They introduced this character, Turlo, who was played by one of the ugliest human beings I've ever seen in my life. A man by the name of Mark Strickson. <laughs> A poor man's Malcolm McDonald. Oh, he had no eyebrows. That was one of the things that freaked me out about uh-huh. him. The idea was he was a plant by the Black Guardian. Mm-hmm. The Black Guardian manipulated the Doctor into accepting him as a companion so he could kill him. But after a while, Jonathan Turner was so impressed with the popularity of Tegan that he decided to try it again with an American companion mm-hmm. and introduced Parapagillian Brown, a.k.a. Perry, played by an utterly, amazingly gorgeous young woman by the name of Nicola Bryant, who is, to this day, my choice for the most beautiful woman who's ever been a companion of Doctor Who. Just as Tegan was a terrible caricature of what an Australian was, Peripagillian Brown was the worst caricature you could ever find of an American. Well, she was a British idea of what Americans yeah. are. This is going to be a recurring It's just like with, us in America. Yeah. What do we say? We think that British walk around... The, right, with bowler hats and suits and... Yeah, you know, they say bloody all right. the time. The thing that was interesting, though, is that once again, Johnny Turner found a really great companion for the outgoing Doctor. The two episodes that Perry plays opposite Peter Davison, there's a really interesting vibe between the two of them. Like brother and sister almost She really played to Peter Davison's strength With that Peter Davison was very ruthless But he was also very human He was probably the most human of the doctors Because he was capable of making big blunders Oh yeah And I think that she played very well to that We also got to see the beginnings of The John Nathan Turner snarkiness Because when Peter Davison announced He was leaving after three episodes And would not negotiate for a fourth season Mm -hmm. He cut Peter Davison's third season by one the last episode was going to be the first appearance of the new Doctor. Did not even let him stay on set for the transformation sequence. Really? And the person they chose was Colin Baker, who played a role in The Invasion of Time as a villain. I love this character so much. Funny because it's like the very last scene of The Case of the Androzani, which is a very good serial. It's done almost in a cinema verite gorilla style. A lot of handheld panoglide mm-hmm. movements. The, the director consciously used no science fiction weapons. So they were all guns. It was this fantasy opera style revolutionary storyline. And it really worked well. I didn't like it when I first saw it, but he'd grown on me. He regenerates, he gets up, and Perry's looking at him and goes, Doctor? And he goes, Well, but you were expecting someone else, maybe? And she's still looking at him going, I, I, I. It's like, that's three eyes in one breath, young lady, which makes you very, very egotistical. (laughs) And then she finally blurts out what happened. He goes, change. And apparently not a moment too soon. (laughs) I was in love with this character Uh from that moment on. From that moment on. And the thing that was great about the Colin Baker doctor was that he was very similar to the John Pertwee doctor, who was very confident, if you remember... Very cool. Well, the John Pert- yes. I call him the James Bond right. doctor because Colin he, Baker he could do anything. Was confident to the extreme, mm-hmm. to the point of arrogance. But he was also 
this incredibly compassionate person. So he was very secure he in was what surprised, he could do. He would surprise you every once yeah. in a while with how compassionate and he And there be. were frequently moments where he would intervene in situations where he knew he shouldn't. But he thought, well, I can still do that. I'm, I'm the doctor, Dad. I'm, I can do now, that. Now, unfortunately, John Nathan Turner gave him a hideous outfit. Oh, I hate it. I think that's the main thing that turned me off from the Colin Baker. I've and shown I know why episodes. That thing hurts my eyes to look at it. I've shown episodes to people who were not familiar with the Colin Baker doctor. They have said that if they got rid of the costume, it would have gone a long yeah, way. Yeah, I watched yeah. Part of the other problem was, once again, this was John Nathan Turner trying to get more adults to watch the show because at this point he was getting a lot of pressure from Michael Grade well, to cancel the show. Well, he should have gave him an outfit. He right. looked like a clown. He then gave Nicole O'Brien, as I mentioned, a very attractive young woman with a very large, how shall we put it, accoutrements. Mm-hmm. Mm. Kept putting her into <laughs> deeper and deeper cut tops. That's a lot of lycra. That's the that I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised show. because in the, in the first one, she's basically in a bikini. The tied-up shirt over the bikini top. Okay. She's wearing the same outfit with only a pair of shorts over the bikini bottoms in the second one. So I shouldn't have been surprised that she was wearing... Over and over and over again, these more and more revealing outfits. The scripts were god fucking awful during this time. Okay. As much as I loved the character, I couldn't stand the stories. They did a nonsensical episode where Colin Baker teamed up with Patrick Trouton to fight the Santarans. Uh, the most notorious episode, which is The Vengeance of Varos, which was about a planet devoted to torture. Okay. John Ethan Turner did a lot of stunt casting during the show's run of this first season. And all the time, they're arguing with this guy, Sir Michael Gray, who took over as the head of the BBC. And it ended that first season by Michael Gray deciding not to cancel the show, but to put it on hiatus. Let me ask you a question right here. Yeah. The BBC, I've read for years, as notorious, that they're very cheap with their budget. Was that an influence on why Doctor Who was eventually cancelled? I think that was part of it because John Nathan Turner did put a lot of pressure and got a lot more budget, which is why the Nathan Turner stories look a lot better than the earlier stories. There's a much bigger rise in production values. But I think part of it was just Michael Grade thought that Doctor Who was a dinosaur and wanted to do more modern kitsch programming. One thing that I think we should notice about, and you and I talked about this last night when we were on the telephone. One thing I always liked about Doctor Who is that they may have skipped on a lot of things, but they didn't skip on the wardrobe. They made the best of what they got. Because you could look at the wardrobe and you could tell that it was a different culture, a different planet. It was very visually, even back during the Tom Baker era, you could look at the clothes they were wearing and the architecture and you could tell you were on a different planet. It wasn't like Star Trek. Much as I like Star Trek, but a lot of times the clothing was very generic. They would just take like a nose and stick it on somebody's forehead. With Doctor Who, at least you could tell whenever they got to a different planet, we're on a different world. You made mention of the Robots of Death. That's a very elaborate looking serial. Very elaborate looking. And also with the alien races. Nobody looks like the Mm Santarans. Yeah. (laughs) Who I love. During the 18th month layoff, Colin Baker was very vocal. But this was the first major layoff. This is the first major layoff. That Doctor Who had. Colin Baker was very, very vocal about being unhappy with the way... Michael Grade was treating the series. So when Michael Grade decided to start production again, he called John Nathan Turner into his office and said, we'll let you start production again, but this is Colin Baker's last year. Which is a pity, because Colin Baker loved playing the character, 
wanted to continue playing the character. He only did it for two, two only years. two years. He okay. was fired. They allowed him to do one more season. Wow. He's the only doctor to be fired. They allowed him to do one series, which was the rather unpleasant Trial of a Time Lord sequence, okay. which was composed of four serials with an overspanning arc, where the Doctor was put on trial by the Valyard for crimes against the universe. Didn't they do that in the Patrick Trotton era? Where they he did was, that with the but, War Games. But he was put on trial by his own people, right. the Time Lords. Well, no, they were being put on trial by the Time Lords again. Perry was given the usual companion write-off where she met somebody in an episode and was sent... Fell in love. We never got to see the introduction to the new companion, who was played by children's show host Bonnie Langford, Mel. And once again, you got the impression that Mel and Colin Baker would have been a great fit. Okay. Because Mel was a fitness instructor, and the one thing that you can tell that was maybe a flaw in Colin Baker's makeup was that he was fat. The well, one, he's a little bit chubbier. He's a, yeah. yeah. The one cereal that she had to share with Colin Baker, the first scene is of him on a treadmill, being very <laughs> unhappy about it. Okay. And in comes Mel, who's this kind of weird-looking, red-headed woman, going, Time for your carrot juice! He takes it, and Colin Baker looks at it, and he goes, Carrot juice! In such a way that shows his total loathing for the idea. Have you ever drank carrot juice? I, I know why he's loathing. Oh, okay. But well, then I you love know, this. Well, you know why. Once again, I've drank carrot juice. I'd rather drink bull piss. This woman focused on the one thing that he was insecure about: his personal appearance, and he hated her for it. And I loved the dynamics between the two. And the worst thing about the Tarot of the Time Lord is that they reveal that the Valyard was actually the Doctor from his last regeneration who was looking to sabotage himself. It made no sense whatsoever. Nah. The total Especially when you have another episode that actually the Doctor in his previous incarnation, they all get together right. to team up to fight some men. So why is he sabotaging himself now? The ultimate uh, indignity that was visited upon Colin Baker, he was not allowed a regeneration scene. When yeah. we see Time in the Ronnie, which is the first Sylvester McCoy episode, he just wakes up. As Sylvester McCoy. We never see the regeneration. Oh, that's cold. We should mention the Ronnie, actually. The Ronnie shows up during the Colin Baker. He's played by Kate O'Mara, who was a actress who appeared with Colin Baker on a very, very famous British soap opera, which is kind of the British version of Dallas, because it was about a family of oil magnets. She played the Ronnie, who was a different kind of time lord. She didn't want to take over the universe like the Master did. She didn't want to explore the worlds. She just wanted to be left alone and do her experiments. Unfortunately, her experiments generally involved taking advantage of other races, well, which made the, the well, doctor not happy. Well, that's not so cool. So Mr. McCoy comes on, has what is probably even an uglier outfit than Colin Baker. Well, he's kind of like a throwback to yeah. what I think the William Hartnell... I think more he's a throwback to Patrick Trout. And Patrick Trout. He's a conscious the attempt... Kind of, the kind of clownish... Right. Small, he is know. a conscious attempt to create a Patrick Troughton without Patrick Troughton being involved. Yeah. He's given this horrible umbrella that ends in a question mark. Yeah. This utterly eye-burning sweater vest, which is nothing but multicolored question marks up and down. Right. He's saddled with Bonnie for the first... I think I saw one episode yeah. with him, and I saw him with the umbrella yeah. and the thing, and I said, you know what, I'm not interested in this And doctor. he wears like a Panama I'm hat. The first season with Bonnie is just dreadful. It's just absolutely dreadful. It's the same old John Nathan Turner stuff. Very morbid, very gruesome. Lots of death and violence and an emphasis on torture and execution. Mm -hmm. I swear, there was a period in the John Nathan Turner year where at least once in every serial, the doctor was about to be executed. Sylvester McCoy 
did genuinely love being the doctor. Yeah, 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 he honestly liked he playing the role. He did love being asked to do what he did. The first thing that happened that turned him around was he was saddled with Miss Sophie Aldred. You're looking at visual yes, aids, folks. Because I have uh, visual aids. Who was introduced as the character Ace. Ace was a young woman. Who also was a very popular right? Oh, companion. she's probably one of the popular she's companions one of, the of all. Most popular companions. She was a punk school girl who liked to blow things up. She was very, very street, very harsh, and there was a very similar vibe to what Tom Baker had with Adric, of almost a father and daughter sort of situation, mm-hmm. coupled with the Leela situation of the doctor trying to refine her. And it, they had a great chemistry together. Second season was silly, because you had stories about villains who dressed up as giant candy men, and a story about a pre-Atlantean barbarian trapped in a British shopping mall. Really dumb stuff. And Sylvester McCoy went to John Nathan Turner and said, Look, I have an idea. If you're going to do more of these silly barbarians and shopping walls, I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. He came up with the plan and got John Nathan Turner really behind it of starting to hint that the Doctor is not as nice as he really pretends to be. Okay. That there's this other side to him that he's been hiding. That he's been playing a big game since the first episode. I think that you see that even if Flash oh, is going back right. to the Tom Baker era. I think that's why so era, and that you it. see when he's provoked, mm-hmm. he has this towering, almost godlike right. rage for vengeance. That, that's why he has his clownish appearance mm-hmm. sometimes. He tries to do this as a way of keeping himself that humble. rage in check. When he lets it go, you know, forget and about that it. That last season, it was the last season of the original series mm-hmm. that lasted from 89 to 90, is actually a pretty good season. You have a doctor who's really engaged in Celeste McCoy, who's really enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. You've got a producer who's suddenly enthusiastic again. And the, you've got a production budget that went up again. Mm-hmm. So there is a noticeable difference. They use film look video on most of it. Yeah. The scripts are good. And in fact, it features what is maybe my favorite episode in the entire run of the original series, which is Ghost Light, which we'll talk about in the second part of this show. You guys hang around for right. that. <laughs> Once again, never canceled the show at the end of the season. Put it on high eight. Ghost Light was the last episode that they shot, although the last episode that they showed was called Survival, which was a master episode where the master became taken over by cat people. It was a dumb show. It, it, be, it sounds dumb. Yeah, by that time, the master had ceased to be... This guy who thought in great grand strokes from Castro Valvin, Legopolis, and the Keeper of Tracking, mm-hmm. and became somebody who basically woke up one morning and go, you know what would be kind of cool? If I fucked with King John's head and made him not sign the Magna Carta. He was a goofball. Yeah. And it didn't help I mean, for the Master, that's yes. kind of petty. It and is. it didn't help that the Master... It's like you want to make the Master... Right. He snatched a person. It didn't help that he was given this black velvet uniform that made him look like a kid's version of what a gay pirate would look like. <laughs> that's, that's a good way to It was just really embarrassing. Anthony Ailey did the best he could with the part, but it was just, it, the character was really badly written during that time. The BBC never cancelled the show, but put it on perpetual hiatus. A hiatus that would last for almost 18 years. <laughs> Until? So, uh, the first thing they did was in 1997, they reached a deal with Fox Television to put together what they were thinking was going to be a weekly Doctor Who television series that would be broadcast on Fox. They recast the role with an actor who is best known for acting opposite Hugh Grant in Whitnell and I, Paul McGann, and wrote Doctor Who the movie. Which was shown on Fox 
New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, 1999. Mm. It was, it's a decent film, and it is definitely in canon. It makes a couple of serious mistakes. It gets a lot of things right. I always like the dialogue. And I love the fact that it has the budget. The TARDIS looks like it is enormous. I always like when they have the Doctor... His dress is a throwback to the John right. Pertwee era. It's a Victorian type of look. Yes. The TARDIS got that big fireplace. He's yeah. got portraits on the wall. He's got the console right. in the middle. And at the end of the movie, there's a great scene where he's sitting there and he's reading a book. Right. And the TARDIS, we see it spinning through space. Mm-hmm. And we get to see the inside of the TARDIS. Yeah, they put the money into it that the British should have put into Doctor Who from the beginning. Well, I know myself when I saw it. And I saw the TARDIS control room. Right. I said, no, that's how it should have looked from the beginning. Paul McGann, who's a decent actor in the role. I put him in the same classification as George Lazenby. Right. From James Bond. If he had more time mm-hmm. with the role, yes, he could have grown into it. The thing I find fascinating about the Paul McGann doctor is you can define his doctor in the, the word super Brit. They yeah. make him overtly British in this one. Yeah. But the thing I found fascinating... Because he's an American right. in this one. He falls in love with the American Dana doctor. Yes. And the thing I found fascinating, though, is if you listen to Paul McGann's The Voice he creates for his doctor, mm-hmm. it's more of a layered accent. As if he's expecting to go on with this role as an American series. I'm sure he did, because yeah. that was the plan. That this was meant to be a pilot for, for an ongoing a proposed series. ongoing series. Of course, you have Eric Roberts playing the master. In one of the later episodes where the Doctor, as a human right. on Earth, he has a book and he has the sketches where he thinks that his life as a Doctor is stories mm-hmm. that his imagination is conjuring up. And he's done sketches. Right. One of the sketches is a Paul McGann. Is a Paul McGann. Yeah, so That's the, one of the things I will give Russell T. Davies is he's selectively respectful of the history of the show. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. The TV movie did not do well. No, it didn't. I think that now it's a little bit more well respected and regarded yeah. than it was when it first aired. Because mm-hmm. Doctor Who fans hated it oh, at yeah. first. Because in the movie it's revealed that the Doctor is half human. Half human, and, yeah. Oh, the half human, blah, 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 blah. But I think that they've kind of left that half human thing out of the wayside. Unfortunately, they kept the other thing they should have left by the wayside, which was Doctor having hot pants for human women. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah, well, we'll get to that so later. So what on. eventually happens is Doctor Who goes... A dormant again after the mm-hmm. movie. But I think it's worth mentioning mm-hmm. that there was some talk, going back to the more right. Freeman talk again, yeah. of a feature film with Morgan Freeman being mm-hmm. the first black doctor. And, and there and was the also the Big Finish project. Yeah. Where you had this one fan who was creating amateur audio dramas about the Doctor. Right. And the BBC, rather than squashing it, went to George Lucas route and said, hey, why don't you do this for us? There you go. And set him up with big finished productions, still going on, Mm -hmm. doing new dramatic audio dramas featuring the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Doctors. And that sustained people like you and me for a long time. (laughs) Until Russell T. Davies, who was best known for creating a show on British television called Queer Ass Folk, one of the characters of which was a gay man who had a Doctor Who fetish. Aunt Russell T. Davies was very much a Doctor Who fan and managed to convince the BBC to do a Doctor Who series again. However, things were changed. He held up Buffy has a template for how to do the show. Here he goes again, folks. <laughs> there was 13 episodes, 
Most of the episodes were done in one. Actually, it was funny. They were asking a lot of actors. They, com- they completely abandoned the, the format with the serial form. Everything was going to be hour-long show. Although there were yeah. two episodes in the first season that were multiple show. parts. Mm-hmm. They basically Buffy-eyes the Doctor Who concept. To the point of introducing a Buffy, so to speak, and making the show more about her. Exactly. We're getting ahead of ourselves. There was a big search for the new Doctor... And oddly enough, the person who became the, the Ninth Doctor was somebody who wasn't considered. Mm-hmm. Christopher Eccleston, who had worked with Russell C. Davies before, had written him a letter saying, Could I do this? I can only commit to one year, but if you'd like me to, I would love to be the Doctor. Russell C. Davies said, Okay, sure. I'm not absolutely certain. I think they were already courting David Tennant at that point. So they figured, okay, we got a year with Christopher Eccleston. By that time, we could probably lock David Tennant in mm-hmm. and then go directly into him. Almost all of the old conventions were gone. They did introduce the Daleks and they introduced the Autons again. First thing we got to get about the Christopher Eccleston era, which is what we're dealing with now, is that he's the last Time Lord. Right. Boom. That's the major thing that we got to get out of the way. The Time Lords and the Daleks have been... Obviously, they said, we're going to stop this screwing around, and we just right. want to meet in the middle of the street and have a rumble. And they wipe each other out in mm-hmm. this time war, and the Doctor is the only survivor, as we find out later on, right. that he pressed the button right. that wiped out everybody, mm-hmm. his people and them. And he's a very morose person when we first see him. Yeah, he's, he's very Very standoffish, sad. very... Very sad, Compartmentalized very away from everybody else. Very emotionally closed off. I want to say before we get into this next element that I bear no malice towards the actress. Here he goes again, folks. Billy Piper. She is a great actress. I think her biggest problem is that they gave her a crap character. For a companion, the doctor pals around with Rose Tyler. And the biggest problem with the first season is that it's the Rose Show guest starring Doctor Who. He stole that from me. Okay, he, I stole he, it from he, you. No, but actually, no. And so, Rose has no. It does up. That's very accurate, right. and you're right because that's what Rose during, saves the universe during the Christopher Eccleston series with Rose Tyler. That's what it is. Right. It the Rose Tyler show and guest God, starring the Doctor. Did I hate the, the whole family? Rest. It's funny because the family was sometimes responsible for some of the best moments in the series, but I hated those characters so fucking much. Probably. You have episode with Doctor would go off on this great adventure in time yeah. and space, and then we have to go back to see what was right. going on with that wacky Rose Tyler right. man. Well, no, but he never went back in space. One of the things Russell T. Davies insisted upon was that modern audiences wouldn't relate to other planets, so we have to keep it on Earth. Bullshit! Well, once in a while you did have a thing. But it was New Earth, okay? Well, New Earth, yeah, but I mean, you did have a thing, but most of the time, yes, it was confined to Earth. We haven't seen a Doctor Who before because during the John Pertwee right. area, he was confined to Earth. So it's not like we But he didn't have a choice then. Here, we're just seeing... We're going back. The biggest problem I have with Russell T. Davies as a producer, and the reason why he's got to go, if you ask me, is he's got this set group of ideas that he just keeps bringing out every single season. Okay. Here's the mind control via cell phone. Slash okay. satellite trope. Here's the alien race interfering with humanity's development in the past. Here's the bizarrely okay. multicultural okay. universe okay. You know, places in time and space where you and I both know there wasn't that sort okay. of ro- Tom, racial harmony. Tom, take a deep breath. Now, can we agree on one thing? The success of any Doctor Who in any of these 
eras that we were talking about. Depends on two things. The guy playing Doctor Who mm -hmm. and the writers. Christopher Eccleston, he had that thing. See, that it took me a while to warm up to Christopher Eccleston. Really? It did. Really? Uh, but I will tell you the moment he sold me. And it's a moment that you and I have cited before. In The Doctor Dances. When he figures oh. out the problem. And he's releasing the nanobots to fix and so everybody. everybody lives. And yeah. he, this smile, this like terrific smile breaks out on his face. And he's like, nobody dies today. Because you know what? For one, it's an adventure where everybody lives. Yes. And they even say in one of these episodes that Doctor on Many Worlds brings death. That's one thing I loved about the Dalek episode. Well, is is that the Doctor is their boogeyman. Is That's the story they wolf. They tell little Dalek kids, if you don't behave... The doctor's going to come get to imagine you. If it, is, it, is it Bad Wolf or The Parting of the Ways where the doctor has the confrontation with the doctor says, you know what they call me on your world? The Gathering Storm. He, he's the boogeyman yeah. of the doctor. Well, my other little, favorite line was That's what they David tell a little kid. Uh, one of my all-time favorite episodes is The Girl in the Fireplace where he's assuring Renette, what are you? It's like, I'm what monsters are afraid of. That's what he tells the girl. He says, yes. well, you know what monsters dream of? Said they dream about me. me. That's what they do. That's the doctor. But we're they kind of getting ahead of him. ourselves. And to be fair, there are some really excellent scripts in this first season. Mm -hmm. Mark Gaddis's Dalek. The two-parter we've mentioned already a couple of times before, The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances, which features the scariest little monsters ever seen in that With the gas mask. Yes. Are you my mommy? Are you my mommy? Are you my mommy? That freaked the crap that out of me. That shit freaks me out. The little kids with the I gas liked... mask. And also, it introduced Captain Jack Harkness. Yes. I got to about... Billy Piper, even though she's a little on the horsey side, she is a very beautiful woman, but they keep her in that stupid jumper and that sweatsuit. Oh, man. When he, she gets out of those outfits, she Remember gets the, the episode they had where they met Charles Dickens? Dickens? Yes, and she's... Oh, she was good. My favorite Rose Tyler outfit. Now, when you outfit. put it in the... Oh, yeah. When you put it in the right clothes. My favorite Rose Tyler outfit is from Empty Child. The leather jacket with the Union Jack t-shirt. You yeah. put her in the right outfit. She, she cleans up good. She may be like... A she cleans up good. Yeah. She's got one of those beautiful smiles that just lights up a room. And I think I like her mother a little bit. Okay, if you're going to have an actor playing the mother, it helps if they look well, like, like each other. They do look like and they could be mother and daughter. Spies, her character, has some of the best moments in those two seasons. The moment in Father's Day where she confronts the doctor the first time, it's like, what are you, like 40 or something? You're yeah. howling around with a teenage girl? Or my other favorite was in that otherwise dreadful episode, Monsters and whatever the heck they called that one, the mm -hmm. one with the, the, the Absorbalof. Yeah. Where she, she tells the guy, the, the point of view character, you want to know the truth about the doctor? He leaves. He comes in and he makes your life bright and he leaves. They nailed it right there about which even was brought back in the episode with Elizabeth Slater right. where she Graduated came back today. again. Although Russell today. T. Davies, there's one thing that I really can't stand about Russell T. Davies, uh, one of the many things I can't stand about him, is his insistence that there's no other relationship that a man and a woman can have but a romantic one. Exactly. And he wrecks a Sarah Jane Smith relationship with the Doctor because he insists that it was a romantic relationship in that episode. And it wasn't. No, it wasn't. It, it was, wasn't, which means you have talked about plenty of times. It's a brother and sister and also, relationship. And I think we ought to go on record right now. I personally don't think that the Doctor had a sexual relationship with any of his female companions until we get to this crap. Okay, place. there is one... 
companion, the way that Jonathan Turner played it, I always had this suspicion that the Peter Davison doctor and Tegan had Tegan, something. Tegan, yeah, yeah. Had a little bit of something. But then there was something weird going on in that Yeah, we know Because you, you go with... Well, you know something with Tegan. You might have had something going on or something uh, with See, I'm more of a Nissa. I, I like Nissa better nah, than Tegan. Nah, I was more of a Tegan. <laughs> but, uh, there was always something weird going on in that TARDIS during that period. Because if you remember, whenever they would shoot scenes in... The bedroom that Tegan and Nissa shared, there was only one bed. There was something wacky yeah, going on there. Yeah, yeah, it was something, yeah. That was when the TARDIS was getting a little bit freaky. And yeah. Uh, until Russell T. Davies, you're right. I don't think there was ever, with the exception of Tegan, there was never a sexual relationship. No, no, no. This is my thing. The Doctor, and we've talked about this. Right. The Doctor, he looks human, but he's not. He's an alien. And to me, even though he looks human, he right. would look at a human female... And he wouldn't feel any sexual attraction right. for them. As a matter of fact, most of his relationships with his companions has been a teacher-mentor right. sort of thing. I'm showing you the universe. Right. I'm showing you things you've never seen before. You take this back to your world and you let people know right. this is what's out there. You can be more than what you are. So at the end of the first season, Christopher Eccleston regenerates and becomes David Tennant, the youngest actor the to ever play the doctor. doctor. And the hottest, according to the female demographic. So many female <laughs> calls. Unlike with Chris Eccleston, I warmed David Tennant immediately. I don't know why. There's something about him. I could see elements. You know how like Tom Baker would have this happen where he'd be totally jovial and happy and joking, and then he would just turn around and just you knew he was not to be fucked with. David Tennant is scary. David Tennant can turn around. And he can make me believe. In that two-part episode mm-hmm. that me and you were talking about, the, remember when the aliens was hunting him out and he yeah. had been forced to be human? The doctor, because they've taken his human life from him, right. that he was so happy, he enacts such a it's revenge so on them. Vengeance on them. This is now, why I actually prefer... That's it. why you don't piss off right. the doctor. <laughs> Even though... The second season features the absolutely awful episode that we've referred to. It has so many great episodes. I, I prefer the second season to the first season. Yes. And I think yeah. one of the nice things that Russell T. Davies was kind of letting on was Rose was treating this like a romantic relationship and the Doctor was oblivious to it. And I love the fact that they worked with it. And there were some great... Yeah, the episode involving the... The Queen Elizabeth the Queen, Elizabeth, episode. Queen Victoria I love episode. the Queen Victoria Because she calls him much. Yeah. You, know, you guys think this is a bunch of bullshit. Right. No, well, these are the thing. These are pe- and she tells them, these are people's lives. Right. Right. Playing with. And that's you the know. thing that, that's great about that second season is that it's Rose and Mickey later on treating it like a big fucking game and it bites them on the ass so fiercely. And it brings the doctor back to his responsibility. He's a time lord. He's right. not just somebody bopping through the universe. He's responsible mm-hmm. for what he does. Whereas I think with him dealing with Rose and Mickey, he kind of lost right. sight of that. The Christopher Eccleston he was aware of that. But when we get to David Tennant, he's like, oh, well, how you doing? Yes. Well, you've got like things like The Girl in the Fireplace, which is a uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, episode. You've got the two-part of the... Folks, we- if you don't watch any other Doctor Who episode, The Girl in the Fireplace. We'll, we'll cite a couple others, but The Girl in the Fire. Write that down right, right. now. The two-part we cited earlier, before, The Impossible Planet and The Satan Pit, where they... The Satan Pit. Oh, which my is God. seriously scary. I'm telling you, I watched that two-parter. Mm-hmm. I had to stop and get up. The last said, half hour is, of that yeah. two-parter peters out a bit. That build-up where it's Ooh. just so freaky. And when the doctor yes. actually goes down into the yes. pit and roses up, and you say, oh, wow, man. you really don't know how this is going to end. You really and don't. And 
the two-parter, which introduces the Cybermen into the new series. There are some really great moments in the second season. I think it's the better of and the three seasons And then we'll go into the next episode, and but we're going right. to mention right now probably the single best episode of the new Doctor Who era, Blink. Well, that's in the third season. And I had great hopes for the third season, because Billy Piper moved on. They kind of wrote her out definitively. When I saw the first episode of the third season, Smith and Jones, I was like, this is the companion I want, in that... Martha Jones, who's played by the absolutely fucking amazingly gorgeous Ajima Freeman, is a medical doctor. Who is, if I wasn't married, that's the wife I, yeah. want, oh, I yeah. would want to have right but now. But the thing I love about her is there's a theme in the first season that the doctor feels he's made a mistake in bringing Rose along because she's just another stupid monkey. That she's gone on this trip for selfish reasons. And I think we should mention that there's a lot of things... About the Christopher Eccleston era, we should mention that they introduced the idea that the doctor, he can hook up your cell phone and you can call your loved one. Right. He realizes that you got loved ones that you leave them behind. Right. So he gives Rose a cell phone, he puts a chip in it. Mm-hmm. So if she's in the year 1 million AC where she's watching the death of the earth, right. she can still call her mother and say, hey mom, I'm right. okay. Do that. So Martha is a medical doctor and she agrees to go with the doctor because she's curious about stuff and she has a vital mind and you can almost see almost from the beginning in that first episode the doctor recognizes this girl is smart this girl can be a help to me well you got a thing for Martha I've got a real thing for Martha I don't blame I got a thing for her too I think I don't dislike she's also by the way but you know what I really like I really like that they took the time to make Rose and Martha two distinct separate characters and Rose's family I mean yeah Rose is a Rose is a good character she's just a different character from Martha and Martha's family is so much more different from Rose's family exactly you can't confuse Rose and Martha no you really can't and for like the first couple of episodes they continue on the idea that Martha that the doctor trusts her a lot more. He trusted her with his with his life. life when he right. decided when it was after the, the aliens were chasing. He said, "Well, I got to become you." Right in that first season, when the Daleks are ready to come down on him, what does he do? He sends Rose back when these aliens are coming to get him. What does he do? He tells Martha, "Keep this." I can appreciate this being a black person. That she's remember, the first what, black companion. She willingly becomes a slave in. Whatever time 1911 England. England in order to safeguard his identity. Right. Which is incredibly strong willed wi- character. Which isn't easy for a woman. She's a doctor, right. for God's sake. And she has to pretend to be a slave. Like there's that scene in where order the, the to preserve nurse. his identity. There's that, that scene in where the school nurse chews her out. What do you presume to know about medicine? She's a doctor. She's a yeah. full credit doctor. It's, it's, because the doctor says, you gotta keep this right. safe. Now, the season, unfortunately goes south very quickly. First off, by turning Martha into Rose Light. Rather than continue with this idea that here's somebody who's just generally curious about things and wants to experience new stuff, she's in love with the Doctor. Mm -hmm. And she whines about it. Why isn't he in love with me? Why is he in love with Rose and in love with this one and that one and the other one? And she becomes an unpleasant person to hang around. The scripts are terrible in many cases. And it's topped off by that absolutely dreadful season finale with the new Master. Okay. Who is just totally a wackadoodle. 
I mean, there's like some great, once again, some great scripts, including Blink, which we're going to talk about in the second part, yeah. including the Family of Blood slash Family of Blood, yeah. Human Nature, which we've also cited as a great episode. Mm-hmm. I happen to like 41. You don't as much. No, I don't. But I think it's definitely the worst of the three episodes. It's one that actually got me so frustrated, I almost threw something at my, my television set. That's it. We brought it up to the today. We've got the fourth season coming soon with Catherine Tate. And I think we just about got... This is the longest episode we've ever this done. This will be the longest episode we've ever done. So. I think we've kind of brought you guys up to speed right. on everything you need to know about Doctor So Who you're ready to now. hear our favorite and episode. It, and if you're not, then what you need to do is email us and let us know, Derek, Tom, you didn't cover this, you didn't cover that, you oh, need don't, to don't do... don't do that, because you know what's going to happen. We'll get, like, the new shake questions. You do this, you need to cover this, you need to cover that, and the only way you can do that is by emailing us, which is what Tom is going to tell you okay. how to do right if now. If you want to send an email, you can go to... Our Gmail account, which is better in the dark. It's better the letter N, the dark, at gmail.com. You can also leave a comment on our website, which at the moment is still on Potomatic. It's betterinthedark.potomatic.com. That might change very soon, but you'll hear about that when we finalize the papers for that. Really, really want to go all out. You can join our mailing list, which is at movies.yahoo.com backslash groups backslash better in the dark. Any one of those is a great way to get in touch with us. This is going to be the longest episode we've ever done. We've this is outpaces. We've got to wrap this up. But the next one, you know what we've got to tell people? What? We've got to say Happy New Year. Oh, we, yes, that's right. This is going to be... Well, it's because even though we're recording this on the 21st of yes. December, by the time you hear this, it's It'll going be to be January. Year. So, Happy New Year to all of you. So, the the dark listeners. Greetings to our robot conquerors of uh, Chiron Beta Prime. Oh, man. <laughs> I knew he was going to throw that in. When we come back, well, we'll be back Uh, after a break, and we're going to talk about... And after this, what you're going to hear is that it's the second part part. of our Doctor Who marathon. We're going to be talking about our favorite episodes. That's right. And we're going to continue. It won't be two hours, we promise. It won't be two hours for you. You know what we're talking about. Anyway, this has been Derek Ferguson. And Thomas DJ. And remember, we're not talking about a movie, so I guess no matter what you do... Go see that Doctor Who Who episode. episode. (laughs) Good night! Thank you. God bless. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to John Drew of Anything and Everything About Drew Sheet, Mike and Jen at Earth2.net, and the members of the Better in the Dark Yahoo group at movies.groups.yahoo.com backslash group backslash Better in the Dark. Better in the Dark has never had any sexual relationships with any of our time-traveling companions, Except for that one time we OD'd on Scarb and Jewel Whiskey, and we prefer to forget that. Previous episodes for the show can be downloaded from betterinthedark.potomag.com. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to betterinthedark at gmail.com. That's better, the letter N, the dark at gmail.com. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation. All material copyright, Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that you'd probably be pretty cranky too if the only things you had in place of hands was a plumber's helper and an egg beater.